Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. To understand the power of the Semitic triliteral root, consider the grammatical, functional, empirical, and thus anti-Platonic literary interconnection between Dabar, word, Kedobram, pasture, Yadaber, subdued, Watedaber, destroyed, Beddabero, at his speaking, Middabarek, your mouth, and Midbar, wilderness. Only in the original Semitic do we hear and see the consonantal link between the shepherd's pasture, the utterances of God, the wilderness and the subduing, even the destruction of those who hear his words. His Dabar, Father Paul Tarazi writes, is administered in the wilderness and proceeds from his shepherd's mouth, while the sheep's dilemma lies in that the utterly non-Platonic, non-Shakespearean to obey or not to obey is not even the question. It does not matter whether a ba is emitted or not. Obeying maintains the life that the sheep is already enjoying, while disobedience posits the same sheep as Obed unto destruction as an Aramean by himself in the wilderness. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 28 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 498 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard and I this morning had a beautiful conversation about Semitic functionality. When people talk about the deeper meaning of the text, trying to go below the text or above the text, they really misunderstand. In fact, I would go so far as to say they don't hear what Father Paul has been saying all these decades about Hebrew, about the Semitic in general, and about functionality. The way to think about Semitic languages, about Hebrew, about Arabic, about the triliteral root, and the way that grammar and language works in these languages I mean, imagine Tony Stark. We've been talking a lot about Tony Stark. In fact, even in the way that obedience works in Scripture, not as something you choose, but something you're stuck with. 
because there's shrapnel in your chest and you either accept that you need this power source strapped to you and live or you remove it. You can't say you love having it strapped to your chest. You're just stuck with it and you live or you don't have it attached to your chest and you die. Is that a choice? I don't know, Rich. Do you love it? I don't know. But it's there and you live. In any case, imagine Tony Stark having his digital table in front of him and he puts a Semitic root on the table and he taps the root with his finger and suddenly a web spreads out like a neural network or like a tree branch that spreads out in multiple directions, one dimensionally flat on the table, just suddenly lights up on the table, just spreads across, connecting to different words. That's how it works. And so you tap one root and then you see how it connects to another root and you see how it connects to another root, but it's flat. It's monodimensional. There's nothing above this branching and there's nothing below this branching, but it extends out in a very complex way. So to understand how it connects to different words, you have to see first how the root connects to different terms, but then you have to see where it then connects different terms in different localities in the text. But again, it's flat. If you look below the table, there's nothing. If you look above the table, there's nothing. There's no meaning below the text or above the text. When you start trying to talk about the deeper meaning, you're making stuff up. And (laughs) what has happened, you had a great example, Rich, what's happened in the modern church and in modern scholarship and modern theology is the stuff that people have made up, which you used to be able to say was floating above the text with some strings attached is now just floated away. When you read the Hebrew text, there is this unmistakable pattern that you have words with similar meanings connected by this similar root. Anyone who speaks English knows that even though the word export and import are different words, there's a connection, and one can assume that it comes from this root, port. And, you know, originally had to do with ships, and it was going into the port or out of the port, but now we can use it with airplanes, and we have an airport, even though it's not on the sea, and it's not in the air, it's on the ground, but it functions like a port, so we call it an airport. You can start to draw these different connections between words all around this word port. And we have this phenomenon in every language. So the way that this is structured in in Semitic languages, this triliteral root, it's a, a root of three letters, sometimes two, sometimes four. We call it triliteral because three is the most common number. This is how we're able to bring these words together. And we were doing this during the genealogy because we just have a list of names where we know nothing about them. They appear nowhere else. But the one thing we do know is that it's made up of these three letters. Well, how do these three letters function elsewhere? And that gives us a hint of why this name is chosen to be in this genealogy, because we have these unmistakable connections. 
all over the place. So the fact that we see this series of letters appearing over and over again with very similar word meanings shows us that there's some kind of significance. And so we're going to pay attention to that. But we did the same thing when we looked at Mark. We saw the word ephthes appear over and over and over again, immediately, immediately, immediately. And by seeing the pattern of how this word is used in Mark versus Matthew, we're able to say something about Mark. When you're reading, or better yet, hearing the text, you're making these connections in order to see how this network functions, as you said. This is why the insistence on the original languages, because the understanding of the text comes from precisely this interconnection of words. And as soon as you translate it, you no longer have this connection among words because it's specific to that language, to that writing system even. And we have to assume that this is the original meaning and this is the original language and writing system and that even the medium is the message. You can't understand what Scripture is saying unless you're seeing this connection of roots. That's why when you read through the list of names in English, it doesn't connect with anything. And so people are looking here and there to find some kind of connection. But when you see it in the original language, which is Greek, you realize that this comes from Hebrew, and then you're able to find a literary connection that you can't find when it's in English or even Greek. The importance of hearing it in Hebrew is hearing the root in order to hear the connection with other words. We live in the United States in 2023 in a world that is so divorced. The word divorce is incapable of expressing the chasm that exists between our universe and the world of the text. There's no way that I could express, even if I were to speak biblical Hebrew as one as conversant in Semitic as the authors of the text, there's no way that I could express to you the great chasm between our historical context and the universe of the biblical text. Remember, a chasm exists between the West Side that I grew up in and the West Side in which the people of St. Elizabeth gathered to pray in 2023. It's not the same West Side. The Minnesota in which my children grew up in is not the Minnesota in which I grew up in. So specific is the context in which the text was written. That's why the date of the receipt of the text. Just forget about reception history. It's nothing but navel-gazing. And once again, the Tower of Babel making man into God. That's what they're doing. They're self-glorifying with this reception history nonsense. The biblical text was written to shut the human being out so that he would not make himself into a god. Any attempt to find a way to insert oneself into the world of the text is self-glorification. We've said it so many ways, Rich. I just want to keep saying it until people really get the message. There is no God but the scriptural God. So we have to submit to its universe. This is what the people were complaining about 
They wanted whatever was happening in Capernaum to be for them. They wanted to take Jesus's good stuff and have it for themselves. They wanted to adapt what Jesus did in Capernaum to themselves. They couldn't accept that they are left out because they're not part of Capernaum. That's it. You're out. You didn't get the opportunity because it wasn't offered to you. That's it. It wasn't offered. Healing a widow was not offered to anybody in the land, just outside of the land. That's just how it worked out. No apology. That's just how it worked out. Scripture was written in Hebrew, not in English. So I want the Bible in my language so that I can understand and apply it to my life. Is like we were saying a couple episodes ago. It's colonialization. I want to live my life in my house, in my farm, with my crops, on your land, on your back. That's not how Scripture works. I have to go native when it comes to hearing the text. I have to become as close as I can to be as the people who wrote this text. Now, am I ever going to know that really what that is? God only knows. But from my understanding of the text, I have to keep adapting to that. Because once, as you said, Father, I submit to the text, that's it. If I submit to the text and choose otherwise later on, I am now a rebel, I am now an apostate, I am now a traitor. And any life that was given to me is now taken from me. I don't know how much of a choice that is. I guess technically... Tony Stark could decide to cut the energy source out of his chest, and that would be a choice in a technical sense, but it's no choice. Functionally, it's no choice, because as soon as he makes that choice, he is no longer functional. Now, this other point that I've stressed, that Arabic, as a living Semitic language, has a special value, on the one hand— is an abrasive point in a Western context because, let's face it, Western literature, Western film looks down its nose at the peoples of the Middle East as much as it looks down its nose at Jewish people. It's an historical fact. But it's also an historical fact that we're not the first people to point out the value of Arabic for the study of biblical Hebrew. I mean, you have it in the Middle Ages, Richard. You have this wonderful Jewish scholar from Al-Andalus, Ibn Barun, who is famous for his expansive work on the study of Arabic cognates for understanding biblical Hebrew. So we're not pulling this out of nowhere. And the Quran, because... It preserves the one Arabic in the spoken tradition of this language as a living language is an excellent window into scriptural Hebrew, which Father Paul argues in his book is concocted out of the extant Semitic languages of the ancient world in the region of Mesopotamia. It doesn't mean that you just take it wholesale. You have to always test the cognate against how the Hebrew triliteral is used functionally in the biblical narrative. But there's value here. 
there's value in the various Semitic languages in looking at the cognate vis-a-vis the triliteral. This is very difficult for people who are proud of their own languages and cultures, which are beautiful languages and cultures. But hear me, brothers and sisters, who cares? With respect to Scripture, who cares? Just like Paul stopped by Rome on his way, we're just stopping by. (laughs) You're not the reference. And we say this as American boys. We're not the reference. We have to accept we are not Paul's reference. We're not part of the story. That's what we are trying to say. I'm not even going to say that's all we are trying to say. That is what we are trying to say. We are not part of the story. We have to submit to this. In your English literature, the Arabs are the thugs and the criminals and the terrorists. That's your problem. We're not reading your literature. We are submitting to the Semitic of the Almighty God. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. Right out of the gate, I want to point out the mistake of the New American Standard Bible. Now, on the one hand, you have to give them credit because the translators were looking at the consonantal Hebrew vis-a-vis the Septuagint. Because the word in the Greek for throw down, katakrinizo, aligns to the Hebrew shalak. Now, if you go to Second Chronicles, yashliku is used to say thrown down from the top of a cliff. So they looked at the Hebrew text in two chronicles and said, oh, they must have thrown Jesus down from a cliff. But it doesn't say so in the Greek, Richard. Now, if you look at the Arabic cognate for shalak, it's salaka, which means to travel along a road. So this assumption that Jesus was almost thrown off a cliff and then he found his way out of it is incorrect. I prefer the reading, Richard that he was dumped by his relatives in Nazareth who were jealous. And so they threw him out of town, which for him was a blessing because they threw him out and sent him down the road towards the village of grace, which means it was a gift because by being rejected, he was able to go out along down the way to the next town. Even if the way the cognate in the Semitic colors the text is debatable. I disagree with the New American Standard Bible imposing cliff when it's not written in the Greek, Rich. They took him outside the city. That's definitely clear. They threw him out. And they took him to the top of this hill so that they could send him down. That's what we know based on the words themselves. So the cliff is implied, inferred by some, but it's not there in the text. However, the point is clear, like you said, Father, sending him on his way. Is this correct? Is it incorrect? According to the story, if you want to put yourself in Jesus' position, oh, he must have been so sad that, you know, he's in his hometown, and they literally kick him out of town, they throw him out. 
But this is what sends him on his way, and this is his duty. He continues to do his duty. And in fact, he's fulfilling his own words because he just said all these things were done, you know, with Naaman and with the widow. Those were done outside the land anyway. So next stop, out of the land. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So, you know, again, I have a problem with the translation because in the Greek, it just says he went. It doesn't say his way. And that really bugs me because the word way is a technical word. But he did pass through. He passed through their midst and he went along and he did make his way because his interest is to carry the teaching of Isaiah, which God put in his mouth in the synagogue in Nazareth, which was rejected by his own kin. His interest is to take that message forward so that it can be made fruitful according to the will of his father. That's why, to my mind, Richard, the Arabic cognate is functional here. Its meaning is functional because the interest is to keep moving along the road, to shake the dust off your feet. It's reminiscent of Mark in this sense. You are thrown down, but it's a blessing that you are thrown down. Something that would have been in your way is now off your back so that the gospel can be fruitful according to the will of God. We can see this in the grammar as well because it says that passing through their midst, he was going. The word is imperfect, which means it's an ongoing action. It's not he left. It wasn't a point in time that he left. This is one point along multiple points of the going. So he went through their midst because he was continuing to go. This is the way that we see Jesus functioning in Mark and in Matthew, in Matthew where he's the sower and he's continuously sowing the seed. And here he continues to go. The word continue is not in Greek. I'm supplying that in order to try to understand what this imperfect is since we don't have it in English. So he was going is the closest we can come to it. He passed through as he was going. He stopped by his hometown as he was passing through to the Gentile lands of the Galilee. He was there not just for his relatives, his fellow citizens of his city, just like he told the story, God was not just there for his people, so to speak. He was there for his people, i.e. those who are outside of those who consider themselves his people, in order to make a point that God decides who his people are, not the people. Jesus doesn't decide where he's going to stay. He follows the will of his Father. This is the only way that he has life. This is the choice that was imposed upon him. And now that he was declared the Son of God, either he is the Son of God, or he can be the Son of Joseph. And as the Son of Joseph, he has made himself an enemy of God. That's not a good situation to be in. 
the offer that he can't refuse is to fulfill his duty and to continue on, to continue moving from their midst into the Gentile lands to bring this message further. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.